Welcome to the Success Leaves Clues podcast with Robin Bailey and Al McDonald. Have you ever wondered what makes someone successful? What are they doing that's different? How do they achieve greatness? We believe that success leaves clues. In this series, we are interviewing very successful people from different walks of life to hear their stories. We'd like to remind our listeners that the views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and not necessarily those shared by our hosts. Welcome back to the Success Leaves Clues podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Life and Legacy Advisory Group. Are you a small business owner who thinks they pay too much in taxes? Well, we can help. Give us a call or book a meeting by clicking the link in the show notes to book a free financial consultation so you can have peace of mind about your financial future. We're also brought to you by ARIA Benefits. If you're a business or HR leader and you're needing a competitive employee benefits package to help you attract and retain that top talent, we can help there too. Check us out to build a customized benefits package that fits your business and budget. I'm your host. Excited to be back here with my co-host, Al McDonald. Al, how is your day going? Excellent, Robin. Thank you for asking. Always excited on days like this because we got a full slate today and some great people to talk to. So um, just ready and anxious to get going. All right, me too. Before we do that, Al, you recently, this summer in August, you raised a ton of money for sick kids doing your bike ride. And then you did something very interesting in the month of September with your bike. I was hoping you could share with our listeners. Well, yes, I set a goal a few years ago to do some bike touring in different areas of the world. And my goal was 10 in 10, 10 bike trips in 10 years. And COVID kind of threw me off a little bit, but I was able to get back to it this year. So I was able to travel over to the north part of Portugal, which if people know Portugal at all, is the somewhat unflat side and did lots of climbing. And the good thing about climbing is you also get to go downhill. So lots of up and downs over a few days and very exciting. Now, our guest, I think today has maybe he'll share his story similar, but not quite on a bicycle and probably a little <laughs> bit more speed involved. But I won't spoil anything. I'll let him talk about that if he wants to. Well, it was very cool to hear about your bike ride. And it seems like everyone that you know has discovered Portugal at this point. It seems to be maybe a little undiscovered in, in prior years, but certainly people are finding that it is a beautiful country in Europe and certainly worth the visit. Well, let's get started because I'm excited about today's guest. And I do have to give a shout out to Josh Singer, who made such a great introduction for us. So joining us today is Eric Simmons. Eric founded Magnus Healthcare Recruitment Solutions in 2011, and in under 10 years, built it into Canada's largest healthcare staffing agency. He's been asked to lecture on topics of entrepreneurship, people, and HR technology in over 15 countries and has written several publications and patents on innovative approaches to the world of human resources. Bootstrapping Magnus and raising nearly $4 million for his second tech for company, WorkWolf, he's here to share with us some of his colored past in becoming a wildly successful business person and entrepreneur. Eric, welcome to the show. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? I am great. Doing well and very excited. Very excited to hear the story. So um, when you were talking about your bike ride in, in Europe, so yes, I had the opportunity to do some hills recently in a vehicle though in a car not on a bike but i gotta tell you we were at the top of where they do the tour de france so that was one of the road trips that we did in the car and at the peak maybe 100 meters from the peak was a couple on a bicycle built for two 
and they were about 80 years old, a husband and wife, and it was just the cutest thing I've ever seen. You've got these like older senior citizens at the top of where they complete the Tour de France, right? At the peak. And it was just an inspiration, you know, seeing that type of health at that age and that type of love or togetherness at that age. It was just my wife was like, I'd love to do that with you, honey. And I said, well, we better start training for it now. I bet bet that was a pro cyclist, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it is amazing. And it's funny that you mentioned that because on all the trips that I've been on, that is one of the things that I've noticed is the opportunity for couples to cycle together. And there's these things called e-bikes now, which have allowed people to, you know, do that kind of thing in their older age. And I think it's great, like, because otherwise they'd maybe lose that opportunity. And like you say, it's a great way to spend some time together and do some things that you might not have otherwise been able to do at that age. Mm -hmm. These guys were not on e-bikes. They were on like a hardcore racing bike. Yeah. Hardcore racing bike built for two. Yeah. They're in, in peak physical wow. condition yeah and you'd have to be if you're on those types of routes yeah <laughs> they are tough yeah no kidding well let's start with where you've kind of come from so you've had this successful staffing business and now you're starting another company i guess where i'm coming from in the first question would be why do you go through all that trouble of starting a other tech company while you're still operating what sounds to me like a very successful company in magnus well i love problem solving that's something that I've loved doing since I was a kid. The problems just keep getting bigger and bigger. I told my entrepreneur forum, so Josh Singer's in in my entrepreneur forum and so are some other extremely talented folks. We've been in the same forum now for about eight years. And one of the guys is, I'm sure Josh has mentioned, kind of like the godfather of blockchain, right? His uh, son had founded Ethereum. And kind of when blockchain was just becoming popular or known really in 2016 and 17, he had brought this, I guess, challenged to the group and said, look, this is a pretty cool tech. You know, you should see if there's any use cases for your businesses. And so I started exploring it and realized that in staffing and identifying talent and validating information, there's a lot of friction points in that in the recruiting business and a lot of data that is hard to access because it's all kind of third party and siloed, whether it's employers or validators or credentialers, it's all separate. And so if one of the, the good use cases here for blockchain is that you can kind of create this, we call it a digital work passport, but you can create this digital repository of information that's from a trusted source, whether it's government, previous employer, just like a background checker would do. But you can decentralize that and democratize it, create the center of gravity instead of the center of gravity being around the employer or the background checker or the issuer, the center of gravity becomes the individual themselves and they can retain that information. They can update that information and it remains tamper-proof. So it can't be falsified. And when I looked at the data sources that we were using within the employment market, the most utilized one still after like 70 years is the resume, which is often embellished, often inaccurate, sometimes blatantly false. And that's the data source we still use. And then we use social media and there's no governing entity that ensures that that information is actually truthful. And people have been, I guess, to compete, they've been forced to embellish that information. And so employers and recruiters are left with very bad data to make critical filtering and hiring decisions. And so I founded WorkWolf in in 2017 to solve that problem. It's really the, the data problem that we were looking to solve. And what Dimitri, the guy who introduced me to this, had said was, hey, man, you're boiling the ocean. Like, <laughs> it's a huge problem. So we needed to be extremely creative on how we would create a critical mass to make this thing actually fly. 
And we've done that. It took about four years for us to finally commercialize it, about a million in R&D. We went from, you know, 100% blockchain public ledger down to like 10% of our tech stack, just using a permission ledger for granting or denying access to that valid information. But here we have probably 60 customers now, some very big enterprise businesses, about I'd say 50 or 60,000 users on the network now using the digital work passport instead of a resume. And we've got some, because I have a very extensive background in healthcare and our staffing business is exclusively with kind of the nursing healthcare practitioner side and contracting, those contractors move positions every two or three months. And so in the old world, you had to validate that information every single step. And these guys, it's like urgent care, right? If a hospital's calling for 10 nurses, they need them now. And so if you wait for a background check in the old way, you've got two week leg time. And so with the digital work passport, the nurse themselves can provide access to either the recruiter or the employer, the recruiter or the employer, and they can be hired right away. So it, it eliminates any kind of waiting time or friction. So we're working with the chief medical officer at Deloitte right now, and we've got a very strong team to see how we would make this thing kind of part and parcel with kind of standardization within our healthcare practice. And I think if we can do that in the Canadian market space, we'll lead the world because it just changes the healthcare system. And I mean, I could go on for this for a while, but maybe we should switch gears. I mean, I'm really passionate about it because it can certainly change things and we need a change within our healthcare system drastically. We could probably do a whole episode on, mm -hmm. on that one topic. A couple of things I hang out just nature of what I do. I hang out with a lot of chief people officers and CHROs and stuff. And that's one of the you know conversations we had because I won't out anybody, but I know people who embellish or outright lie on their resume. And you think, boy, what a challenging role to be in because you have to be able to read behind the lines and find out what's real and what isn't. But then I was also struck by your the beginning of your answer that you love problem solving. Because I find people that I meet who are truly entrepreneurial, they always, even though they're running a company, they're doing something, they're passionate about it, they're growing the company, they seem to always be on the lookout or have something <laughs> else or an idea. Like, what is it for you? Is it a desire to find things or do you happen to fall into those? Like, how does that happen for you? I'm always on the lookout. And I think it has to do with, I've worked with a, like a really, really amazing coach and I've worked with lots of coaches over the years. And that's something that I find the most successful people do is they work with the most coaches, right? Because they just want to always continue to learn and challenge themselves. And this gentleman I had met on a kind of another entrepreneur event, his name's Douglas Bracken. And his book is just awesome. I can't remember the name of it right now, but essentially it identifies the population as kind of two groups, right? And it goes back to the, the evolution of our species, not all the way back to kind of like limbic system, fight or flight, but a little fast forward in terms of where we transitioned from hunter-gatherer. It's like this divergence happened where 90% of the population, it just became so easy to get food because you can farm. Right? With agriculture, advancement of agriculture, it's like here you got water, you got food, you really don't have to hustle anymore in terms of getting your breakfast, right? But there was kind of this lag of a subset of the population of about 10% that still hunt. And those hunters have kind of a different makeup of always being ready, right? Just in case something happens or needing to jump on it, because if you don't jump on it now, that food source is going to be gone for the next 10 days and you're going to be real hungry if you don't get it, right? 
I would kind of liken it to that, that I'm, I'm always on the lookout. So quick to react, I've had to kind of do a lot of work in terms of calming myself down uh, for not always being so quick to react. And, you know, that's helped in terms of leadership and stuff. But I used to be a pretty snappy individual back in the day. Eric, can you talk a little bit about who you are? And in terms, especially I think of, you know, go back and did you always see yourself as an entrepreneur running a business? Or is this something that you didn't start out with, but then you saw an opportunity or that you took advantage of somewhere along the line. Can you give us a little bit of your background? <laughs> well, this is Did a I good... just ask a loaded question? No, no. I just, <laughs> I'm thinking about where we first met, guys, and I'm kind of like thinking about how much do I want to divulge here in terms of my... <laughs> My ethics, but I'm going to share it anyway because it's a lot of fun. And I was just a kid, so I can kind of blame it on that. But I didn't know what entrepreneurship was, but I certainly knew how to take advantage of situations or look for situations to win, right? So I'm going to share this one, and I hope it's not held too far <laughs> too much against me. But back in the day, I was maybe 10 years old, and they used to have those like events at school where you would, very much like yourself in terms of raising funds, right? Raising funds for heart and stroke or cancer society. And, you know, in my adulthood, I've, I've done lots of those rides and things like that. But as a kid, there was one for heart and stroke, and this was when I was in public school. And, you know, people would come back with their donation slips and it would say like $2 from my dad or 50 cents from my uncle, you know, and they get like 10 bucks and they get a skipping rope, things like that. And I'm like, you know, screw this. I mean, there's a lot of neighborhoods that I know of that maybe we could do better here. So I took my bike. I lived in Lee's side at that time at Bavier Nagaton and went through the trails and popped up in Edwards Gardens, which is kind of the bridal path neighborhood. And I'm like, okay, now we're talking, right? So I go on this, I think it's called High Point. It's kind of beside the bridal path. I'm like, I'll leave the bridal path for later. And I see the address, like 54 High Point, And I write down, okay, 54 High Point. I put the signature down on the thing and I'm like 25 bucks, right? And so then I go to 56 High Point and I'm like, hi, I'm here from Heart and Stroke. I'm raising money for the Heart and Stroke Foundation. Uh, would you like to donate? And he's like, oh, my neighbor put 25, how's 50? I'm like, okay, cool. I like that. And I was like, wow, 50 bucks, 10 years old. That was a lot of money back then, right? So I just kind of continued to venture along my way a couple hours later and I had maybe a thousand bucks in checks and in cash. So, you know, after a week or so, I had raised something like three or $4,000 and I come and back to the class. And I think the second highest one was maybe 60 or, or 70 bucks. So I guess that's kind of an entrepreneur in terms of figuring out new ways to do things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I guess, one. And then, you know, I started little companies back when I was in university, like Fitness 101. I did kinesiology in school. So I did personal training and I did an advertising, medical advertising, where we sold ad space into physician offices. I did that with a buddy of mine from Harvard, who's Oliver Madison, who's gone on to be very successful. And I don't know if you guys know this, but kind of at that point was a turning point for me. I had a real passion for music and was a songwriter and singer and uh, kind of packed in the towel and did that professionally for four or five years as a singer songwriter. And then, you know, realized there was no money in that and a lot of luck. People 10 times more talented than I was were kind of gigging for 100 bucks a night at 40 years old. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to be doing this. So kind of came back into the workforce. And that's how I started in recruitment. So some great stories there and <laughs> certainly <laughs> interesting about your venture into raising money. So some great successes. What about some things that maybe you've had to overcome? Like where along the line have you had some obstacles that you can talk about that you've had to overcome? Yeah, there's been lots of them. And I, 
I tell you, like there was a point with Magnus, and I think anyone who's had a lot of success, these don't get shared enough in terms of kind of your failures or your challenges or your sleepless nights or your, you know, waking up and your bed is soaked from sweating, right? Like those are all very real for guys that, that really make it. It's never a, a clean ride. Like there's one point with Magnus and Workwolf where everything went wrong, could have went wrong. There was a point where we had no IP with Workwolf. Magnus was bleeding money. And I had no team. I had to let go of like 16 people. My partner at the time, you know, one of the first founders of WorkWolf, really overhired when we didn't have the capital to support it or the kind of the foresight to be able to see what was going to happen within our market. And even like one of my earlier investors, like Eric, he's like, you should just close the doors, man, and start again. And I'm like, I can start again, but I'm not giving up, right? You also see that entrepreneurs have incredible grit, right? They believe in something and they will not stop. You know, sometimes, you know, almost if it kills them, right? You know, so I got to give just so much love and respect to my team that stayed with me and also my wife who's, you know, been there with me the entire time. So that's one. And then there's always a pinnacle event, or not always, but a lot of the time that it kind of shapes you, right? It makes you believe in yourself. And, you know, I had that back in high school and I know we had shared this story earlier, but you had said, Robin, that you had kind of a Pat Maloney your own, Right. So is that something you guys might want me to share or? 100%. Yeah? Okay, okay. (laughs) It's a good story. So in grade school, I had a best friend. Her name was Kim White and I adored her. I had a huge crush on her. I don't think she ever felt that same way about me, but so be it. And so we were really, really good friends in in grade school and at the beginning of high school. And she had connected with a, a guy who came to our school who was in a grade. In high school, I was very tiny. I was kind of the last to hit puberty and, you know, maybe... 100 pounds in grade nine, like just small. But I still was had a huge mouth and was quite bright, right? So I made enemies pretty quick. <laughs> and I think I made enemies with the, with the wrong guy at the beginning of school. And so this guy, Pat Malone, to give you an indication of just how tough this guy was in the first week of school, and I'm old, right? So this was when there was a grade 13. So in grade 13, there was the toughest guy in our school in grade 13. And this new kid, Pat Malone, ended up just beating the crap out of the toughest guy in our school. And he was only in grade 10 in the first week. And this guy ended up dating Kim and therefore by proxy ended up really wanting to kick my ass. And so, (laughs) and so he did several times. One time I was like literally running away from him. And he was also, he was a boxer and he was a soccer player. So he was faster than me. And I just like, just got beat, just could not. And I did everything I could. I thought I could outsmart him. I thought I could be his friend. I, you know, I did everything I could and there was nothing I could do. So I basically said the only way that I can, if it's even possible is try and beat this guy at his own game. So that's, that's what got me into boxing. So I started boxing in grade 10 and there was no boxer size. There was no Tybo kind of thing. There was no fancy pants. If you were boxing, you were going to the ghetto. And so at that time, Regent Park down at Queen and Parliament, there was a, a box gym called Newsboys. And I went there and I said, hey, I want to learn how to fight. And Tony took me under his wing and he, he never charged me. I think over like three or four years that I boxed at that gym, I never paid a cent. And they taught me how to fight. And I was really dedicated to it. And you kind of actualize at a certain age in terms of who you think you are and what you're capable of. And so, you know, I think it was in my last year of high school, you know, OAC, they called it back then. And Pat, with his big posse, and this is so silly, we were at Side, which is like middle upper income, right? But they had their ghetto blaster on their shoulder and I was on the volleyball team. And so they came around the top track and you basically looked down at me and said, 
you're dead this year. I just looked up and I was like, no, right? Kind of like Neo, no. <laughs> and he was like, what? Ah, and he lost it. And so I said to my volleyball team, I'm like, this guy definitely is going to be at my house when I get home. Can you guys, like, he's got eight guys. Can you just like come with me? So they're walking. We all take our, like, I had a beat up little Toyota Corolla. I was driving back home and we took our little, a little convoy, very different convoy than the one I'm in now, right? <laughs> took our little convoy of like Hyundai Pony, Toyota Corolla, Cabriolet, whatever, right? So we get to the house and, and there he is. And he comes up to me and just starts, just bitch slaps me. And that was the beginning. And I kind of don't remember what happened after that, other than my neighbor, who was a, an ex-Cubs football player. My guys couldn't get me off this guy. He pulled me off. And that was the last of it. And I didn't realize just how strong I was. I was working out all the time in boxing. So I was very fast. And, and that was it. So you know, I, I played sports and I was in the kind of the gifted program at the school. And now I was the toughest guy at Leaside. And so Pat never bothered me again. I certainly got to practice my skills, though, because when you get known as the toughest guy, other schools want to kind of come in and, and challenge you. So that, that shaped me. It really allowed me to see if you, if you put your mind to something and, and you train and you might surprise yourself. Right. So that's that's the thing. Right. I'd say I'd say try and surprise yourself what you're capable of, because anybody can do just about anything. I love that story. And you told more of it this time than you did last time to us. And you and I connected on that because I have a similar story. And I remember being on a bus, you know, because I was taken to the bus from my high school. And I remember this kid and he would make me, I'm saying that in quotes, he would make me get off one stop further. Otherwise, he was going to break my wrist. That's what he was telling me. And I remember Eric being afraid and I remember being angry that I was afraid. And that's when I went into martial arts. And, you know, like you, I think that moment of facing adversity of, of someone trying to exert their force over you and then the adversity of learning jujitsu. And of course, anyone who knows jujitsu, similar to boxing, you're not very good when you start, right? So everyone out there is going to beat you at first, but <laughs> I think it shapes you. And, and for me, and I think similar to you, it's carried over into my entrepreneurial life mm -hmm. because we face those adversities early on. There are times where you're pulling your hair out. Why am I doing this? Which brings me to my next question, because I want to go back, because you talked about your wife mm -hmm. and the importance of, you know, she's been there through thick and thin. And if I look at my own life and I look at from the genesis of the idea of what I wanted to do through all those ups and downs to where we are now, maybe you can talk about what does it mean to have someone in your corner like that? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your wife. Sure. I don't know if you guys, if you can see the smile on my face, right? It's just like, she's such an amazing human being. And they'll tell you, you know, behind every successful man is a stronger woman, right? She's been there through everything. And neither of us came from, from money, right? We didn't have money when we started out. And you know, when stuff got really bad, just to give you an idea of how much she's been in my corner, when things were going bad, she said, it doesn't matter. It's not why we're in this together. Well, if we got to go and get off the grid and live in a cabin or whatever, we got each other and we're, we're building a family together and that's enough. And, you know, what a special thing to say and to make you feel loved and important, right? For the right reasons, for the other stuff that, that success can bring. So I met Heather, she was a candidate, and I did not want to get painted with that brush of dating candidates, right? That's not a good place to be as a recruiter. <laughs> so so um, I had placed her in a, a couple positions. She was from a small town in the West, from Sarnia. Very smart girl, went to Michigan for STEM cell research and then kind of came, wanted to get out of Sarnia and go to the big city and NRP, which was the company I worked at when I was just an individual contributor at a recruiting agency, is where I met her. 
So she's like, I want to get into medical. And she's going to hate me for sharing this, but I'm going to. The sun was behind me and it was on her. And, and she either had really shiny teeth or there was a, a tongue ring. <laughs> so I said, maybe half the way through, I'm like, is that a tongue ring? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, we can't really have that if we want to get you in front of some pharma and med companies. You might have to take that out. She said, okay, no problem. <laughs> So she did, and we ended up placing her at a kind of a tech healthcare company called HealthScreen at the time. She did great there, and then we ended up putting her in the dental implant space, and she did great there. She was always successful, but she always just, you know, she wanted a family, and she wanted to raise kids. Both of us come from kind of that, what do they call that, lucky kids or something, where you basically have a key around your neck, right, because your parents have to work because they didn't come from money, and it's just, it's hard, right? So... Both of us would come home and our parents would still be working and we'd kind of take care of ourselves kind of thing. And so she wanted to do it differently. And I was always so envious at my school because a lot of these families were well off enough to be able to have the mom stay at home and the kids could go home for lunch. And I always had my lunch packed and never was an option for me. So we both wanted that. And I think the reason why it's worked for us is because, you know, our core values and our life goals are the same. Like we love nice things and we love extravagant vacations and crazy things like racing sports cars through the Alps, right? Those are all amazing and adrenaline rushing, but just stuff. But if it's experiences that we can share together, good and bad, it really builds us. And the reason I'm in Europe is because it's our 10th year anniversary. And I think that's a huge accomplishment today. I mean, from my buddies that I still stay in touch with from high school, more than half of them are, their marriage didn't work out. So, yeah, so we met in recruiting and I waited for four years to date her. She told her mom the day of, that's the guy I'm going to marry after she met me, which is so cool. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. And she that did. That's a great story. Mm -hmm. Well, shout out to Heather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because to anyone that will listen, you know, Carol Ann has been in my corner just from day one. And she's been in those moments where I have, I've been literally on the verge of tears, pulling my hair out, thinking, what have I done here? Right. And thankfully you get through those times. So always important to have those partnerships in place. And I love what you said about having those experiences together and those moments in time, you know, you can make all the money in the world, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we're going to have with those experiences and all those memories. I love that you mm -hmm. said that. Thank you for sharing that because that was a bit of a personal question I threw in there, but I will get back to kind of business. I know a lot of recruiters. I know a lot of great people. We probably know a lot of the same people, mm -hmm. super people. And I'm just wondering with tech and AI and all this kind of thing, what are your thoughts on, do you see tech replacing recruiters? What do you see going forward in the future? There's a human element that you have to have to establish culture. But I do think that technology will eliminate a lot of the monotonous work or repetitive work that you need to do as a recruiter. So for example, pre-screening. So corporate environments, jobs will get 250 applicants at a time. And because of the workload of, uh, and this is another problem in the industry right now, the workload of these corporate recruiters, they're managing 10 to 20 jobs at a time. You just do the math, right? That's like 2,500 3,000, 4,000 resumes they got to go through every month. It's impossible, which is why the average time that these corporate recruiters spend on a resume is seven seconds, right? You're spending seven seconds on a resume with data that's only accurate half the time. You're starting with a ball of crap, right? There's no way that you'll be able to pre-filter pr properly. So you guys had asked me kind of what's your personality type and so, or what makes you an entrepreneur? And so what we've done at WorkWolf is we've taken 
one of the larger data sets of 30 million plus profiles. And these are psychometric assessments created from psychologists and industrial psychologists, behavioral psychologists, and taking these profiles and created machine learning algorithms that have taken that massive data set and created predictors. So predictive analytics that we call it the pack finder, and it's the first credential within the digital work passport. And so every applicant that applies to our customers will take this assessment. And what it can do is it can predict their performance outcome in 64 different predefined jobs. And we've then created another algorithm that will take a company's top performers, they take the assessment and it will create kind of the golden performer benchmark of how the best people in those organizations, who they are, how they tick, what their motivational profiles are, what their comfort with conflict is. And it takes these kind of seven factors, combines them, and then can filter applicants by personality character traits that's going to make somebody successful within that exact position. And so that type of technology where you can now filter those 250 resumes within less than a second with our tech and be able to say, okay, I'm going to focus on these 10 or 15 because they're a 95 plus percent match to our top performers. That saves a ton of time. And it takes out that whole concept of, do I need to read through all this resume and validate the information? That's still important. And that's where the digital work passport comes in. So now we know these guys are going to perform well, better than an interviewer who's got those associated biases or whatever, right? It takes that out of the equation. And then the digital work passport, like we have a lot of customers in kind of the insurance and financial business. Things that they need is they need to know what the credit score of this person is going to be because they're managing people's finances. And what would happen in the past is they would do like a, a cattle call and they interview hundreds of people and they'd be ready to pull the trigger on 15 or 20 of them. Then they do the background check. They realize 10 out of the 20 don't have a good enough credit score to actually do this and they have to start the whole process again. What our digital work passport does is they can activate that at any point. The information required goes to the individual. They upload the information to the ecosystem that's required. Then our network of certified background checkers, like the typical suspects, like Sterling, First Advantage, Mints, certain, like all these organizations, will do the enterprise level background check. But now the individual has it, right? So it's we've got a patent on this tech called Q before view. That's what we call it. But essentially, it, it gets the information ready. So at the point of job offer, everything is available for it to be viewed, right? So here you have predictive analytics and you have validated information. And now you can make a much better, well-educated hiring decision. So yes, it will change things. That's very cool. And I've had chats with Al about this too, and in AI, even in our business, and we're leaning into technology. We've pre-pandemic, I mean, we were all in the office. As soon as the lockdown hits, we leaned right into technology. I know a lot of my peers in my industry kind of froze and didn't know what to do. And we just said, let's just lean into everything. And we're doing the same with AI to find out how can we leverage AI to make workflows easier, faster, more efficient, but realizing still there is still, especially on Al's side of the business and financial planning, and even on my side of the employee benefits, that human element is still much needed and appreciated. Mm -hmm. We're almost at the point, I just want to find out if Al has any last words, because we're almost at the point where we're going to jump into Al's signature question. But Al, Al usually has something to say before we get to that. <laughs> that's funny, because that's exactly what I was going to do. I was going to jump in. I picked up on one thing that you said there, Erica, and about how your process and your technology can eliminate some of the biases. And I think all the recruiters or interviewers, or it doesn't matter who, there are some of those pre-existing biases that may 
eliminate some candidates unfairly, if you will. Mm -hmm. So are you seeing, and I don't know what the word is, but results where maybe some of those biases are being removed based on the use of what you're doing? Mm -hmm. So that's a really hard thing to measure, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can't go deep into find out what somebody's biases actually are. I'm sure you could, but we're not going that deep in terms of that side of it. What we really need to see of our metric is what the time to hire is, right? Which is one of the biggest KPIs in recruitment. Have we reduced that? Have we reduced the cost, like the hard costs and then the resource rich costs associated with hiring? So in terms of the resources required, and we've done all that, but the real measure is how do they perform? Do they last longer in the job? Is attrition less? And are they performing better in terms of the bottom line for the company? And those are all things that we're measuring now and all things where thus far we've had tremendous success. I think we've had, I don't know, something like in the last 18 months, maybe 300 people hired through the system. And I think 95% of them are still meeting or exceeding expectations and still employed, which is way better than the average rate. It's like something like one in five make it that long. So we're showing really, really good results, but we need to be able to kind of nail down our specific numbers. But when it comes to the biases, I've heard two things on this, right? They're like, AI is biased, right? That was the first big kind of news flash. It's, it all depends on the data that you use. I don't disagree with that, right? But I do think the bigger your data set, the bigger your cohort of people, the less biases matter, right? And so we've got a population data set of 30 million completed profiles across 40 countries from socioeconomic and demographics from extremely low income to extremely high income to at the end of your career, the beginning of your career. So it's a, a nice, robust data set, which will kind of eliminate that. The only way that human bias is going to get out of it or really affect, I think, is the more people you have in the interview process. That's really probably the best approach is you have everybody kind of take a look at it and get a consensus between all of the people that interview. If you have one person interviewing, you're asking for trouble. Well, I'm glad I asked. So yes, if we want to jump into the final question, unless anyone's got anything they want to add, are you ready for the closing questionnaire? Yeah, I don't even know what it is. I'm kind of nervous. All right. Well, here we go. <laughs> I don't know if Robin has shared this with you before. And if not, and you don't want to answer it, that's fine because we can edit it out. So that's easy. But the question is this, a society grows great when old persons plant trees in whose shade they will never sit. So can you talk about any of those proverbial trees that you might be planting? Yeah. So I think a legacy is first and foremost, your children, right? They see things and hear things that I'm really big on. They've really brought energy to me because they can sense energy, I think, better than any adults can, where even if Heather and I are having a dispute of some sort, and even if our language is one way, but our energy is off, the kids know, right? And I think we lose that sense over time. So it all starts with me, right? It all starts with me because, you know, my perception a lot of the times is skewed. So I got to recheck, go to my, and I call it good orderly direction, short for God, right? It's whatever that is. For me, it's universal truths that no matter where you come from or from what time in history, they are everlasting. And those are things like fairness and honesty. These are all our core character attributes, humility, that first I must portray. And really that's the legacy you have is if you touch people in a way that inspires them for good, energy is contagious. I'm a big believer in that, right? You smile, someone else smiles. You're off, somebody else is off. They look at you the wrong way. So it all starts with you. And then our kids, you can go and build something. You can go and do charitable donations. And all this is for outside stuff. One of my mentors always used to say to me, like, 
life out there and success is one thing, but nothing characterizes a person like your home life. If you can make it in your marriage with your kids, that's the best success that you can have. Well, I love that. And you said a couple of things that, and it's funny because even within the last week, we've had some conversations. We did a little exercise with our staff about a week ago. And part of what you just said about, you know, setting that example for your kids, whether it be you talked about energy, exercising, mm -hmm. doing the right thing. Absolutely. They pick up on that. If you want them to be good citizens and uh, grow up and be contributors, what you do at home is so important because they are watching mm -hmm. and they are learning all the time. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because it's something that we have talked about even within the past week. Cool. Well, this has been such an amazing conversation. Eric, thank you for joining us today and, and thank you so much for sharing your journey. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they have questions about yourself or what you're doing either at Magnus or over at Workwolf? Sure, I think the best way is to pin me on LinkedIn. Well, that does it for today's episode. I hope you can tell, I think you can, that Al and I really enjoyed this conversation. As always, I hope you did too. If you have any questions for Al or myself, please feel free to give us a call or we're joining the conversation on LinkedIn. And remember, as we saw here today, success leaves clues. We'll see you next time.